Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton. I'm here with uh, Hayden Hagerman today. And Hayden is my former student who is a graduate of Duke. Hayden, what did you, what was your degree at Duke? I did a Master of Divinity and most of my focus came in historical theology, uh, especially his, history of biblical interpretation and post-liberal theology and late modern theology I focused a great deal on um, and how they were seeking to recover along with uh, Nouvelle Theologians and Karl Barth, the neo-Orthodox movement, scripture, uh, scripture as a church's book, scripture as scripture. Um, so that's what I ended up focusing a great deal on. And you were studying, you were just telling me, with you studied with uh, Stanley Hauerwas, with Paul Griffith, and your focus then ended up being Bart, Wittgenstein, and Augustine. Not an unlikely trio, I'd like to say. Those are three individuals that I've said have omnivorous minds. I mean, they think about everything. And so there's a lot for us budding theologians and theologians to think about with them, which also makes any sort of final judgment about their work increasingly difficult because there's always something else to be said. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is introduce then Wittgenstein and Augustine together. And, and I may slip into, into calling him Augustine or Augustine. So please excuse the the shift. I assume everybody at Duke says Augustine. Right, we're among the civilized. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, I'm, I'm yeah. out here in Missouri, so we don't know any better. <laughs> right, that's well, okay. <laughs> Give us a so if if you had to lay out then the conversation, how how would you introduce the the difference and and just the conversation in general about their projects in regard to language? Sure. Well, if I may, I'll start off with the question that uh, recent blog posts and some of my research in the past year or so has focused on, and that is why Wittgenstein begins with Augustine. Before you can answer that question, you have to consult the investigations themselves, that is the philosophical investigations, Wittgenstein's late great work, because I think it problematizes even that question. Why begin with Augustine? And uh, if you, if I may, I'm going to read a remark in the investigations, remark 525, where I think this kind of comes into focus. Here, here is Wittgenstein, and he, he's talking about coming upon a quote, and the quote is this. So this is the entire remark. Quote, after he had said this, he left her as he did the day before. Unquote. Now it's Wittgenstein speaking. Do I understand this sentence? Do I understand it just as I would if I heard it in the course of a report? If it stood alone, I'd say I don't know what it's about, but all the same, I'd know how the sentence might perhaps be used. I could even invent a context for it. And then he says in parentheses, a multitude of familiar paths lead off from these words in all directions. Now, Imagine coming into a person's home. They've invited you over for dinner. You knock on their door, they open it up, and you come in, and one of the first things that you see 
is a quote hanging on a placard. Let's say it's uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and now here I'm appealing to a, a story from my own childhood. You see a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson that says, What lies behind us, what lies before us, is nothing compared to what lies within us. Now, how do you react to that quote? Do you see that quote and immediately go find or Google who Ralph Waldo Emerson is, get a list of his works, find his works, then find where that quote came from, and then try to understand the quote that way? Or do you just take it as decor, a nice piece of art? Or do you take it as motivating you to action or some sort of inner reflection? Or do you take it as a statement about the household that, in this case, the Hagerman household is a bunch of transcendental pantheists? Okay. How would you take that quote? What, what would be the normal way of reacting to that quote, w would we say, the ordinary way of reacting to that? And the point is you're, you've got to put it in a context, and in some way you're, you're going to understand it in context. Is that what you're driving at? So something even more than that is that we supply the context for that quotation, right? And we would say that there's the multitude of familiar paths that lead off from these words in all directions. The familiar paths that I laid out were more the last three, right? You uh, see it as a piece of art. You see it as motivating you to inner reflection or action, or you take it as a statement about this household, right? But the kind of the outlier there, and this is going to tie into Augustine, I promise. The outlier there is the historical genealogical uh, reaction to that quote. It's to say, who is Ralph Waldo Emerson? And let me go find all of his works to put this quotation into context. It would be that sort of way of acting that would seem deeply strange to most people. Again, this is the context of you coming into somebody's household. They're inviting you over for dinner. Can you imagine this person coming into your household and immediately asking you, where did that come from? Who is Ralph Waldo Emerson? Can you give me a list of his work so I can find out what that means? No, I mean, you think of coming into a, maybe a Christian household and they have a Bible verse here and there, right? And the idea is not that they're trying to render a full-length exposition of that biblical verse in its context and whatnot. The idea there is something along the lines of those three scenarios that I imagine, that either it's a statement about the household, uh, it's supposed to motivate you to reflection or interaction, or it's just a piece of decor. But the historical genealogical mode seems to be the strange way of reacting. So this comes up with Wittgenstein, I think, at the very beginning of the investigations. You, come, you open it up, and the first thing you see is a quote from Nestroy. And the quote goes like this, The trouble about progress is that it always looks much greater than it really is. Now, again, ask ourselves those four questions. How do I take this? Do I take it in a historical genealogical mode, where I go searching for all of Nestroy's works to find out what this sentence really, really means? Or do I naturally allow... The, the context to be just the rest of the investigation, that I read that quote from Nestroy as a way of introducing the investigations and all that follows. 
I'd like to think that it's these other ways. It's not the historical genealogical mode that we enter into when we read that quote, but we supply different contexts for it. In this case, the rest of the investigations is the context for understanding that quotation. I say this all to problematize even the question of why begin with Augustine. Which, which we should point out is the way that uh, Wittgenstein begins the philosophical investigations, right? That's right. He begins with a quotation from the Confessions. You know, that's how uh, the main text actually begins, with a quotation from Augustine. And Augustine is there describing how he imagines he learned language. That's right. And so this larger question of why begin with Augustine, and this is a, a question that I have myself about even the project, is, is it fair to go that historical genealogical mode, which is find out why Wittgenstein began with Augustine outside of the investigations, find some remarks that he made to his friends about Augustine, read the work of Fergus Kerr, where he outlines the relationship uh, between Wittgenstein and Augustine a great deal, or read a bunch of Augustine's works and say, well, it's a, you know, it's a bit more complicated, Wittgenstein. You shouldn't have began with that quote. You know, I have a kind of simplistic understanding, and I really, I like what you're doing. You're, you're making it, you're saying, okay, that he's beginning with this not simply because he disagrees with Augustine. And I think that's the way that we usually read that, that he lays this out and he says, you know, that, and, and that may be the simple way to get a grip on that. And you're saying, well, that may be the case that he's going to, to give us a contrast, but it's not simply a contradiction. Yeah, it would, it would certainly be along those lines. What I'm saying uh, at present is we are trained and this is a Wittgensteinian point, is that we're trained to take quotations at the beginning of books in a certain way. And it's not so simple to say, I'm just going to read the rest of the investigations alongside this quote. I mean, some of us, especially those who have been trained in theology, don't want to just do that. We want to take the quotation from Augustine and think about where that actually came from in, in the Confessions, and putting that quotation in conversation with the teacher or on dialectic or uh, some of Augustine's other works where he talks about language and the purpose of language, what we're already doing in that situation is perhaps showing that we don't know how to read quotations at the beginning of books, that we haven't been trained properly. Because I think one of the most fascinating things about Wittgenstein is he almost sheds any sort of public acknowledgement of prior usage or of, of history. I mean, you constantly read critiques of Wittgenstein where it says he didn't read Plato, he didn't read Aristotle, he didn't read uh, Thomas Aquinas or, or some other uh, mm -hmm. philosopher or theologian. He just writes and he just thinks. Right? Isn't that a kind of a myth about Wittgenstein? Yeah, I would, I would certainly say a myth. I, I think he was, was more well-read in philosophy than people were. It's just his mode of doing philosophy is much different than, say, somebody else. When you're reading philosophy or theology, an endless prologue, a nonstop prolegomena where they're constantly telling the story of the history, you know, of uh, why usually some sort of narrative decline about why things are the way they are. And now I'm going to uh, set out to solve it. Well, what? What happens, or at least in my experience, when you read a prologue 
or a prolegomena, and it goes on for hundreds of pages. At some point in time, you're, you're going to say, just get on with it already. And that's what I think Wittgenstein is even challenging my project of why begin with Augustine, because in some ways I'm wondering if that question is just going to lead me onto an endless prologue where I'm going to be looking at the history of this use rather than just allow Wittgenstein to supply the context for understanding that quotation. In this case, the rest of the context is just the investigation. Well, let me give you what I presume is the uh, read the beginning of the uh, investigations. And of course, what he's doing is describing that Augustine is uh, picturing as a child that when he began to, he's describing how he began to learn to speak. Correct me here if I'm misremembering. And so he said that I would watch my parents and listen to them, that I learned to speak. And what he's describing seems to be that he's translating from his own language that he seems to imagine he was born with or something similar to that. Mm -hmm. And he's learning a language much like an adult would learn a language that he goes through a process of translation almost and sees what they call it. And then he begins to call it what they call it. Have I got the picture right? Yeah, that's that's certainly correct. That's the quotation that, that Wittgenstein begins with. Now, the accent on your uh, rehearsal of that is going to lend us into, a, I think, a conversation about what is private language, which I hope to get to, you know, here in a bit. But but Wittgenstein's initially going to take this in a different sort of direction, where he's he's going to say what Augustine seems to imagine here is a language built only of nouns. And, you know, he's going to problematize that. And then he's going to say, we also see something in here problematic about ostensive def definition and ostensive definition for anyone who's listening that doesn't know what that is. It's, it's definition by way of gesturing. So if I, if I want to get you to see that this is a cup over here that I'm holding, I'm going to point at it and say cup. And the pointing is the definition of sorts, right? Um, so he's going to lend in that direction. Now, the private language bit that I think some of your accent was on that Wittgenstein talks about in Remarks 243 through 315, he doesn't explicitly mention Augustine. And so some have raised questions about whether Augustine really is really kind of fitting the criteria of imagining a private language. And I'm going to say that he does, but the confessions might not be the best place for finding that out. Let's say real quickly what a private language would consist of then. So a private language would be the idea that your pre-verbal self, the, the self prior to having language as we normally have it, can mean something to yourself and can understand something to yourself, but you can't put that in words to somebody else. A private language isn't the, the idea that I want to come up with my own imaginary language, because if you did so, you could, you could teach that to somebody else. But the idea with the private language is that prior to learning or being trained in any sort of language, you already have one. You can mean something and understand it within your own self. Your own self is the authority, but you can't communicate that to anybody else. And let's draw out a minute because the importance of a private language as over and against what Wittgenstein is doing 
is going to have ramifications for all of how we come to truth, how we understand ourselves over and against, and even the language here to say either over and against the world, or in fact, do we understand uh, ourselves then in conjunction? And of course, it's going to have ramifications for theology. So we might say that theology carried out and seems to be for large sections of modernity at least and i would say even prior to modernity uh, is going to be carried out with the notion of something like uh, augustine's private language not to say it's just his it just seems to be this shared metaphor that everybody is going to pick up on and so this may seem like a a, a very small thing in the beginning But of course, it's going to make the difference between where we imagine truth resides, Mm. how then even we apprehend who Christ is and understand the truth of Christ. Now, I've said some big stuff, but maybe you can can break that down for us because I'm not... You're the expert at communicating. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, brilliance. (laughs) I... Uh, yeah, lacking in luster, I would say. So uh, what you said was all very good, and it, it brings me back to the original point that I was trying to make about the historical and genealogical mode that I think Wittgenstein often eschews, and it's that he began with Augustine, as Fergus Kerr and others will remind us, not because Vic, uh, Augustine was the only person that held this sort of idea, that uh, the preverbal self is capable of thinking and meaning something to himself alone, just not able to express that to somebody else. It's the idea that so great a mind as Augustine thought this. It's not that, as you said, other philosophers and theologians and thinkers uh, along the century, I mean, certainly the logical positivists would fit this description who uh, Wittgenstein is reacting against and responding to. But it's, again, the point that it's Augustine. And it, it's not just Augustine, it's it's the Confessions, which is arguably the autobiography, not just of the saint, but of the Western individual. Mm-hmm. So I think that my use of saying why begin with Augustine is actually justified because of how Wittgenstein responds to and talks about Augustine throughout the rest of the investigations. That is, the meaning of that quotation is found in Wittgenstein's use of it. So that he'll say things like the Augustinian picture or what Augustine here shows us. And then he'll go on and on. And there's other places of agreement in Augustine's thought where it seems that Wittgenstein, whether he knew it or not, was responding to. So in order for, I think, listeners to get kind of the magnitude of why beginning with Augustine, if you'll permit me uh, a quotation from uh, Robert Louis Wilkins' book, The First Thousand Years, where he writes on, Augustine. So here here he begins, and here I'm quoting, it is a conspicuous if seldom noted historical detail that during the first millennium of church history, the church attracted many of the most gifted thinkers in the ancient world. The parade of luminaries is impressive. Clement and Origen of Alexandria, Eusebius of Caesarea, Athanasius of Alexandria, Hilary, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory Nazianzus, and Maximus the Confessor, John of Damascus, and of course the four Latin doctors of the church. 
Jerome, Ambrose, Augustine, Gregory, the Great. Yet Augustine towers above all. It is not hyperbolic to say that during his life, lifetime he was the most intelligent man in the Mediterranean world. From the time of Plato and Aristotle, the great philosophers of ancient Greece, across more than 15 centuries until Thomas Aquinas in the high Middle Ages, he has no equal. Augustine surpasses measurement. More than any other Christian author in the early centuries, he is a world. The steady flow of his thought passed through all the great questions pondered by thoughtful men and women in antiquity, freedom and determinism. How does one know? What is the highest good? What makes human beings unique? What kind of being is God? How did the world come to be? How does one account for evil? What is the place of the affections in the virtuous life? He pondered two of the most mysterious and elusive aspects of human experience, memory and time, etc., etc. So let's just take that account and think with Wittgenstein for a moment. If there was any thinker to begin with, it was going to be Augustine. Because if, if he gets this right, that is, if Wittgenstein gets this right and what he finds wrong in Augustine, that's consequentially momentous for everything that follows. If the error is so great in Augustine, well, it's going to be found in other places. And in fact, it's going to be found everywhere. So the, the, the way that you've expressed this is that Augustine is a world. Yes. That, that he, in a sense, it's not just that he is this great genius, but he sums up millennia what people imagine uh, truth is and how our, uh, human beings relate to the truth. That's right. And... What I'm trying to show, at least in my recent blog posts, is that that because Augustine is this world, um, there's places of his uh, of his thought that I think pose a problem for how Wittgenstein treats him in the Confessions, or how he treats him in the Investigations. For instance, let me just quote a portion, and I'm sorry to be be quoting so much, but this kind of gets the best idea of a section from. On Christian teaching, where Augustine is talking about language, and let's note how it it differs from what earlier uh, summarized about uh, Augustine's kind of picture of language in the Confessions. This is this is Augustine speaking. All of these significations move men's minds in accordance with the consent of their societies, and because this consent varies, they move them differently nor do men agree upon them because of an innate value, but they have a value because they are agreed upon. That sounds like something Wittgenstein could have written about language. In fact, he, he, he writes as much about, about that. So what, what Augustine is here saying is there's not a ground to language. If there's any sort of semblance of a ground, it's in the use of how we speak. It's in what we say and what we do, and, in, and this varies. And Wittgenstein's going to say something very similar. That's kind of what I'm trying to bring forward in uh, putting these two in conversation is that mm -hmm. it's not the whole story, right? Let me sum up in my simplistic way, and then you can correct it. Well, I... I that Augustine is... So I was going to say, well, I, <laughs> I, I happy, happily take simplistic over obfuscation and me being loquacious. That Augustine is a complicated thinker. And that to cite him in one place, that doesn't, in other yeah. words, that with someone of the stature of his thought, uh, consistency is the realm of small minds, and he is no small mind. And so to sum up what he said in one quote is probably to that's not right. do him justice. Yeah, that's essentially. 
And so that in the original quote, whether that whether it's true to say that he simply this fits with a notion of a private language, that uh, in other places that Augustine is describing language uh, in a much more rich fashion, and that will flow out into all sorts of you know I I always think of the end of this form of thought in Martin Heidegger. Mm that Martin Heidegger is going to say, you know, describe the house of language and that we inhabit the house of language. And I've presumed that Heidegger is not saying that as a departure from the Christian or the Catholic tradition that he was trained in, but it is a kind of summing up of that tradition. I would hope that we would say, yeah, and Heidegger is going to go wrong here too. (laughs) The reason that you can't just begin the philosophical investigations and say, oh, look, here uh, Wittgenstein is finding what's wrong in in Augustine. Well, Wittgenstein has Uh a deeper appreciation of who Augustine is, and he may be then making a departure from that, but not a a simple contradiction or, or pointing out the error of that. That's exactly right. And I think the beauty of this, because these thinkers are so rich, there's there's often places in their thought where they get it right that we can imbibe and, and get the other parts better than they did. And I think that's the sort of thing that Wittgenstein does in, this, in his treatment of the confess- Confessions passage, where he says, essentially what Augustine has here is a, is a primitive language. Uh, it's, it's, it's somebody who imagines that words stand for things. And essentially, that's an account of language that is all noun-based. Everything is a noun. Now, the way to easily complicate that for Wittgenstein will, will be to think of exclamations or conjunctions and stuff like that. But even Augustine and the teacher will pose those similar questions to himself. So it's not like and he hasn't thought let, about that. Um, he'll, he'll ask, let's say a minute. What, yeah. what is the significance of saying that language reduces to nouns, and how would Wittgenstein then sum that up? In other words, that is part of what he's making a departure from. Right. Um, One thing that Wittgenstein would would say, he would say, yes, but is that all? Um, He would locate naming as one activity that people do with language among an, an infinite set of other things. So for, for Wittgenstein, it's the idea that if you make something like that absolute, you're going to be held captive to that picture of language. And it's not just going to be a captivity in language I'm, as if we're somehow apart from the words that we speak. It, it's you're, you, you yourself will be enslaved to that picture constantly throughout the investigations. I'm, I'm amazed, and here I would just recommend anybody who, who picks up the book to read, look at the sort of, um, maybe demonic's the word, uh, demonic metaphors and, and verbs that Wittgenstein uses to talk about this sort of thing. He talks about captivity. He talks about bewitchment, being enslaved, being tempted. It's bigger than, than just getting a, a, a problem wrong, right? It, we're entwined with our words. For Wittgenstein, it's there. There's not a, a knowledge that you have independent of your words, as if you can mean something to yourself and think apart from from words, or that you could have a knowledge of the world 
uh, apart from your words. No, these things are deeply intertwined. If you get the picture wrong, you're going to be enslaved to it. And there is no getting out of that picture because all you have is that picture. It's, it, in his words, it's going to hold you captive. Sure. Let's say, let's describe that captivity a bit that what he's describing may, in fact, he's going to make a departure from what we would call modern thought, but clearly it's not simply modern thought, but beginning with somebody like Rene Descartes, that here is someone who, again, is a definitive figure, that what Descartes is picturing is then language as if it exists, it resides, or as if truth resides completely within and that one obtains truth on the basis of a kind of pure rational thought that can be completely disembodied. It can float free of any kind of context. And truth, then, is a completely transcendent category that one arrives at purely through the mind. That's right. And so if if we think back here to remark 525 and you coming upon a quotation like he left her and that, et cetera, how does that thing, how does that uh, sentence mean anything to you? Well, it's by putting it in a context and you've got to imagine a context, but then it means something to you where the Descartes option would be that we could abstract from our context and arrive at something like pure thought independent of language. And maybe even Descartes would give us two realms of truth. He'd say, well, there's the ordinary world and there's that kind of stuff. But then there's the real absolute truth that he's going to align with science and pure reason and kind of philosophical truth. And of course, what happens within the modern period is that even though he's a Descartes who is just a, a, a good uh, Catholic has uh, he's made rational truth in some way a more powerful, sure, necessary sort of thing to use the language of Anselm. That that truth is one that you, in fact, do not need faith to arrive at, but you can arrive at it with a surety that has a sure foundation. Whereas there is this other truth, you might call it religious truth, but of course that truth in some way falls short of reason. And so is it Francis Bacon that when he's describing faith, he says that faith is that realm that in some way falls short, that he uses that understanding, that it falls short of reason, and so is in some way, even though he, uh, people may not have originally meant that, that's what it comes to mean, is that the realm of religion, the realm of things that fall outside of reason, are in fact secondary truths. What that's going to lead to is an obsession with individual words. And this is all still out of an, the, the noun-based account of language. So uh, in Wittgenstein's own account, people are going to become obsessed with words like essence. If we can get to the essence of the thing. Wittgenstein's move is to say essence is expressed in grammar. But, you know, we know, we know what an object is. We know the essence of a thing in relation to other things and that thing itself. And that's the only indicators that we have to tell what that thing is. He imagines at one point somebody asking, what's the essence of the color red? 
and you can imagine how this goes. You, you, you try to distinguish red from purple first, maybe, and then the primary color is blue and yellow, and then the mixture of colors like orange and stuff. And yet you still have you still have the philosopher who's saying, no, 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 what, but what's the essence? What's the essence of the word red? And Wittgenstein, all he can say is, I've learned to call this thing red. I speak English. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the picture that Descartes inherits from Augustine that says that we can get to the essence of the thing apart from the words that we, that we use, apart from the ways that we describe, apart from any sort of training or context. We can get to the essence of the thing. And Wittgenstein's constant rejoinder is that's a picture and it's going to hold you captive. You're going to be enslaved by that. And I think what this ultimately leads to, that I think that you, that you uh, are kind of getting at, is we become sort of gods. Um, and, and that's what the private language bit ultimately leads to us, or leads us in, is that we become these little gods that, that have true knowledge of things apart from, from speech apart from language, apart from training, apart apart from human activities. And that's a very dangerous picture. And maybe that then accounts for a way of reading the Bible, that you have, well, here's the ordinary words of the, the Bible, but what we really want to do is get behind the words, get to the essence that lies, resides somewhere behind or above. And so we'll need to, you know, this is the whole historical critical approach. This is maybe it's just, again, it is a picture of language that you really don't need to be trained in it. But the more you're trained in it, unfortunately, in the period of modernity, the more aggravated it becomes in the, just the presentation of who Christ is, is in some way incomplete or inadequate because we're attempting to arrive at an essence that resides behind the words. That's a very good insight. And it's, it's th something I used to, to struggle with a great deal, but Wittgenstein offers us a way out. Again, think of Remark 525 of, of how, upon arriving at a quotation, and let's think of scripture here. Well, what supplies the context for understanding that? Well, it's the rest of the book. You know, it, uh, we, we can't but read something that Paul says in Romans now, if we pick up scripture with something that James says, we can't help but read Isaiah 53 with Luke's account of the passion now. There's a context of use that, that we have before us for understanding the words on the page, but it's the historical critical uh, mode that's, that seeks to get behind that, that seeks to get away from that. And, and that's sort of what I was outlining, too, with you coming into a, a person's house and you seeing that quote on the placard, is that you're, you're taking this in a, in a quite unordinary way, that you're, you're trying to get behind it. You're trying to, to get somewhere else apart from where you are. And it's that sort of picture, again, that Wittgenstein's going to say, that's going to hold you captive because you're imagining that you, are, you exist apart or your knowledge of the world you as a thinking subject can think and can mean something to yourself apart from language. Apart from the world, apart from embodiment, and that's the way Wittgenstein is going to picture language. I mean, that's the, the it is tied to 
human embodiment to uh, you know gesturing to and once you said embodiment well embodiment is inclusive of an entire context uh, in which we live so that the only way we're going to receive truth is on the basis then of being human and all that that entails in regard to not simply being disembodied souls but and so in a strange way uh, the human tendency is toward a kind of disincarnateness that we imagine that we escape our bodies and that may just be the history not simply of you know a particular form of christian thought but that's the history of philosophical thought that there is this tendency to imagine truth resides elsewhere above the world of chatter as richard rorty has described it and wittgenstein then is pointing us to truth as we have it in uh an embodied world yeah and the language that he's going to use here um for my readers of wittgenstein and for for those that aren't familiar um language games he's going to use and the idea with the language game is that unless we understand the practices that it is a part of. I mean, you just think of the word game and imagine trying to think there's an essence to that word. And you compare various sorts of things that we call games, basketball, soccer, football, ring, uh, roses, uh, chess, etc. Um, and you try to get to the essence of that word game. Well, what do you end up saying about it? Do you say something like, well, a game at its base level is something that you can win or lose at. But then Wittgenstein would point out, well, that doesn't fit for our use of that word with ring around roses, right? Um, who, who wins at that game? You all fall down. <laughs> yeah, you all fall down, right? I mean... Who wins uh, in that game? But no one. I mean, so that's the, again, the sort of thing that's going to hold people captive is insisting on concrete definitions that are absolute in every sense. And I think Wittgenstein, whether people realize this or not, is going to say that we can stipulate definitions, but we can't give absolute ones. Um, so we can say, I'm going to use this word in this sense, and you all are going to interact with that word. But the moment I say that is the absolute definition, I'm going to proceed into a large uh, set of philosophical problems for myself. I, I kind of went on a tangent there because I want to also say that with, with, with your comment that Wittgenstein is going to use the language of forms of life, too. Essentially, what I think he's talking there about, and here I'm just going to summarize the work of someone like Stanley Cavell, it's both our cultural practices and how those cultural practices are connected natural or biological conditions of our life. We can understand what the word basketball means in the form of life of basketball, not just because we can get a bunch of rules put together, but also because we, have, we inhabit certain bodies. We have thumbs, uh, you know, we, we stand upright, that sort of stuff. And this ties in directly to the embodiment portion that you were gesturing towards. It's that don't think of embodiment simply as cultural practices. Think of it literally as the connection between those cultural practices and the natural conditions of life. 
Yeah, that we, we have truth as, as human beings. Hayden, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I, I think we should continue it, that uh, then to uh, draw out the implications of what it is that we've been talking about. And so uh, let's, uh, let's draw this to a close, but let's take it up again. I would absolutely love doing so. It's been wonderful talking to you about these things, thinking with you about Wittgenstein, Augustine, and the whole family. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.